Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to New Books and Drugs, Addiction, and Recovery, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Emily Dufton, and today I'm talking to Ben Westhoff, an award-winning investigative journalist whose best-selling 2019 book, Fentanyl, Inc., How Rogue Chemists Are Creating the Deadliest Wave of the Opioid Epidemic, was one of the first to take fentanyl seriously as both a social phenomenon and a national threat. Since its release, Westhoff has become a policy expert advising top government officials on the fentanyl crisis, and continuing to follow the story on his Substack account. The author of two previous nonfiction books and numerous articles in outlets like The Atlantic, The Guardian, and The Wall Street Journal, Westhoff's fourth book, which we'll talk about in a minute, comes out this spring. Ben, thanks so much for joining me, and congrats on all of your success. Well, thank you, Emily. It is great to be here. I'm thrilled to be talking to you. Awesome. So... (laughs) Your book came out three years ago, back in the before pandemic days of 2019. Um, when you were researching and writing this, was fentanyl the household word it is now? No. In fact, I had never even heard of it when I started writing the book. The book was originally supposed to be a kind of cultural history of ecstasy, but I found out that um there was almost no more pure ecstasy at all, and that dr- party drugs and other drugs were being adulterated uh, by this new chemical called fentanyl. And um, when I when it sort of dawned on me how bad this drug was and how many people it was killing and how it was only going to get worse, I sort of dumped the other book idea entirely and focused on fentanyl. Wow. I was unaware of that connection between fentanyl and um, kind of the psychedelic, I don't know, or do you call it like party drug scene. Was fentanyl adulterating these substances before it became widespread in, in heroin and other forms of opioids? Not too much. It was more that uh, ecstasy was being adulterated by other NPS, novel psychoactive substances, And so I went down the rabbit hole to figure out what these different NPS were. And so there's these like synthetic cathinones, you know, all of these like alphabet soup sort of drugs that were stimulants and psychedelics. But what they all had in common is that they were knockoff drugs. And um, and that's where and they were made in China. They were synthetic knockoff drugs made in China. And so once I started learning about those. That's what brought me to fentanyl, which at the time was mainly adulterating heroin. 
And it's since become very common in meth, in cocaine, and now prescription pills, especially. And, um, you know, and now what I say, especially to young people, is that any drug that comes in a pill or a powder form could have fentanyl in it. That's fascinating, though. So you weren't necessarily researching a substance. You were researching a marketplace, an industry. Yeah, th- this this was just like um, the result of there being all these new drugs that no one knew anything about. And so, you know, throughout, I don't need to tell you, but throughout the course of human history, there's only been a handful of drugs, really, that people reliably have used to get high. And of course, for most of human history, these came from animals or occasion, excuse me, they came from plants or occasionally from animals, if you like licking toads or whatever. (laughs) And so, um, but in recent years, you know, especially since um, uh, synthetic chemicals have become, uh, so synthetic drugs have become so cheap to make um, and and access to, papers that were formulated in laboratories, like scientists trying to conceive of new drugs, um, this market has taken off. And so, for example, you know, the 60s, 70s, 80s, there were all these different medical scientists, medical chemists trying to develop new drugs to patent as a prescription, as a, you know, hospital drugs to be or, or drugs to to um, be sold on the the market. And a lot of these have failed. And so they sort of just sat on chemistry, you know, on the shelves of university libraries for decades. But in the internet age, all of these formulas were put onto the internet. And so what's happened in the last couple of decades then is that these kind of rogue chemists that I talk about in Fentanyl Inc., have started harvesting all of these different chemical formulas and processes off the internet. And that's fueled all of these new drugs that are coming out. And so, you know, for a while there were maybe a dozen or two dozen new synthetic drugs per year, but now it's gotten to be so that there are often hundreds of new synthetic drugs every year. And that's incredible to me. I mean, you think about that development and the rapidity of it in the sort of illicit (laughs) drug industry. Meanwhile, pharmaceuticals have struggled so much to continue to create new psychoactive substances to treat problems like depression or addiction. So it's wild that you discovered this world that has way more innovation and development going on than... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> than we have in uh, the above ground legal world where we're trying to actually solve those problems. Um, well, well, actually, actually, most of these drugs are taken from these psychoactive chemicals developed by scientists, developed by the pharmaceutical industry, right? So there are some rogue chemists who are making their own drugs from scratch, kind of like Sasha Shulgin did, who mm-hmm. made, you know, over 100 psychedelics. But the majority of them are just kind of ripped off from this previous research. Hmm. Well, when they said that the World Wide Web would bring us together, <laughs> maybe maybe this is what they meant. Maybe this is the culmination of that. Um, so tell us a bit about your writing career. You didn't start out writing books about drugs. What got you interested in fentanyl or I guess in ecstasy, which is kind of how you began this project? 
I started out as a music writer and I wrote a, a lot about hip hop. I published a couple of books about hip hop. And then I was the LA Weekly music editor and we were writing about raves and particularly why so many people were overdosing and dying at raves. And this is what got me into doing this deep dive about ecstasy pills because in the newspapers, when someone died at a rave, it, it often said they died because of ecstasy. But I knew that pure MDMA, the chemical found in ecstasy, doesn't very often kill people. And so I wanted to know what these people were actually dying from. And that led me to this whole field of novel psychoactive substances. Wow. So how did you go about researching this book? The illicit drug trade is by nature not terribly open to investigation. Uh, so how did you gain access to this clandestine world? Well, I spoke with a lot of drug users, um, people who I got introduced to through various channels, um, through you know treatment centers, things like that. And I spoke to um, a lot of uh, you know harm reduction activists, so people who are against the sort of just say no approach to dealing with drug problems and are trying to find ways to meet drug users where they are. Um, and, and so a lot of these people were, you know, in the rave scene themselves. And so a lot of my sort of access to this book came out of the rave scene. And I met people like Psychonauts, who try drugs that have almost never been tried before, like new psychedelics, and they record their observations. Um, you know, these people are, you know, really taking risks when they when they do stuff like this, and they they get a real thrill out of it. Um, and as I kind of like got more and more embedded in the scene, I started speaking with drug traffickers, and I started on the dark web. And I reached out to a lot of people who had their own, uh, you know, their own vendor accounts on these different dark web sites. And I was just honest. I said, you know, I'm writing this book about drugs and I would love to, to speak with you. And surprisingly, a number of them were willing to talk to me. You know, I think they think that their line of work gets a really bad rap and they wanted to Ex, you know, ex justify their existence, basically. And when it came to selling fentanyl on the dark web, for example. And then I even met one of these dark web fentanyl dealers in person. And that was a real sort of a cloak and dagger affair. And, you know, I had to agree to keep all personal details, you know, pretty much concealed. And, um, and then, you know, I just sort of kept going and I reached out to these different Chinese uh, synthetic drug operators. And that started just by basically Googling buy fentanyl in China and all sorts of results came up. This was, you know, around 2017 and it was really still the wild west. And I, um, looked into these websites and it turned out that they they were doing this very brazenly and their salespeople's phone numbers and email addresses were right there on the websites. And so this time I impersonated a drug dealer 
and I reached out to them and I had these very wide ranging conversations with these different drug salespeople and asked them not just about the products, you know, how much it cost, how they were shipped, things like that, but, but how they got into this line of work, how they could sort of like, you know, justify selling these chemicals. And then uh, I whittled it down to a few who said they would let me visit their lab if I came to China. And so in 2018, I went to China. Um, I went to Shanghai and saw a fentanyl lab where they were making uh, fentanyl analogs, which are, you know, slight variations on fentanyl, uh, but often just as potent, if not more so. And also synthetic cannabinoids, which are sometimes known as uh, synthetic marijuana, but it's a, a synthetic uh, full agonist chemical, which really makes people freak out, as you know. Um, and so I, I saw this lab. Then I went to Wuhan, and this was before the pandemic. And so I most I like most people had never even heard of Wuhan really much before I went. And uh, I went to this huge operation selling fentanyl raw ingredients known as precursors. And these are, um, you know, the most important ingredients to, to make fentanyl. And like all of these drugs, they're legal in China, but were banned in the U.S. And um, I was shocked to see this huge sales floor with like hundreds of, of young people speaking English, um, sitting in cubicles, selling these these, you know, really dangerous chemicals. And uh, I got I got I met the CEO and did this whole tour of the place. So it was all very harrowing. That's extraordinary. Um, the idea of <laughs> crowded cubicles in Wuhan now is just like unimaginable, you know, <laughs> you really saw you really saw life in the before times. Um, so what what did you find there when you went on this, this global expedition to understand why so many substances in the United States were adulterated with these new strange substances. What is fentanyl ink? Yeah, I mean, that's the question. It's, you know, ultimately, there there have been a lot of people who have asked me questions about like, is this a Chinese conspiracy? You know, there was um, a lot of interest on in my book on both the far left and the far right. And, uh, you know, the far left, I think, appreciated that I gave so much, much credence to this philosophy of harm reduction and that, you know, throwing people in jail is not the answer to our drug problems. But the far right really appreciated how I kind of took to task China. Um, and and I, I learned from my research and my reporting that it's not just these individual bad actors, you know, in these companies that are are selling these fentanyl products clandestinely. The Chinese government is actually supporting these operations in a lot of different ways. And I found out that China um, actually gives tax breaks to these companies who are exporting fentanyl. And they um, give all these sort of like research grants and um, and you know breaks on training and and uh, land and offices and all sorts of stuff. So um, ultimately, I don't believe really that it was sort of like a, a 
a type of warfare and non-traditional warfare against the U.S. I don't believe this was sort of a coordinated conspiratorial effort to try to get millions of Americans hooked on these really bad opioids. I think it's, you know, kind of the Occam's razor theory, like follow the money. And, you know, fentanyl is so profitable for these labs that the sort of regional and provincial leaders in China were willing to look the other way. And a lot of the sort of uh, top brass at the national level really don't want China to have this reputation as the world's drug pusher. And so they have worked to, you know, first they, they banned fentanyl, they, they banned fentanyl analogs, and now they've even, you know, tried to ban some of these raw ingredients. And so it's very much a, a kind of back and forth. And, you know, like the story of every big industry um, in the world, there's, a, you know, the, there's a struggle between the benefits that, you know, all this this money coming in brings versus the the real human cost. Right, right. So, so you know, clearly you've studied really in depth the the kind of political investment in this in this profitable market, right, with these fentanyl analogs and these novel psychoactive substances as a market. But what did you learn about drug use and drug users while you were researching your book? Did researching fentanyl change your opinion about about these groups? Yeah, I mean, I became much more embedded with these communities of opioid users, people with opioid use disorder. Um, you know, I think like we all have sort of a fixed idea in our head about what a, a heroin user is, you know, and, uh, you know, some people might not might have a difficult time feeling sympathy for these people. And, you know, you tend to think of like a, a grizzled middle aged guy who doesn't care about anything except getting his next fix and kind of living on the margins of society. But in the fentanyl era, I don't think that really describes um, the typical user. Now, um, someone using fentanyl is probably more likely to not even have realized that he or she has taken fentanyl. It's not, they're, they're not seeking it out. It's being cut into all these other drugs. And particularly in, you know, recently the fake prescription pills. And so now you're you got a situation where a lot of young people, especially are going to parties and taking what they think is a Percocet or a, you know, a Xanax bar, you know, and they think, well, these are, this is a prescription pill. This has got to be safe. But really, they're, these are pills, when they're bought off the black market, they're, they're often cut with fentanyl, and these young people are, are dying right away. And so while I think some groups, like the, the, rave, the rave culture, you know, I think um, a lot of drug users tend to be really savvy. And even these psychonauts, you know, people, they have access to the Internet, and more information is available than any time in human history about what these drugs actually do, what they actually are. And at the same time, we have better drug checking uh, kits than ever before. And so companies like the Bunk Police and Dance Safe, you know, you, you can make sure that what, what drug you, you think you have, you do actually have. And so if you're informed, you know, you really can. It's sort of like an all-you-can-eat buffet out there on the dark web. 
in terms of all these different psychedelics and novel benzodiazepines and opioids and whatever you can imagine. But the vast majority of users are not informed. They're not checking their drugs. And so it's it's sort of the deadliest time to be alive for for most everyone else. And we've seen that as the number of drug deaths in the U.S. is greater than it ever has been. Well, so it seems like so much has changed between 2019 when your book came out and now, a couple of years later. I mean, where do you think we are if we have more information and drug tasting kits on one hand, and yet significantly higher rates of overdose deaths on the other? What's changed uh, since fentanyl ink came out? Are, Are we doing better? Are we doing worse? We're definitely doing worse, unfortunately. And I think the the problem is that, uh, again, it's the economic incentive. Fentanyl is so cheap. You know, it's only a few thousand dollars to make a kilo. And where whereas to grow natural drugs like like heroin, for example, it's much more expensive. You know, you need to grow actual poppies. You need a field. It's much easier for law enforcement. Yeah. And so and the same thing with the prescription pills, you know, an actual Percocet is is very expensive. But if you're, you know, a dealer with these uh, pill pressing machines, they can, you know, mix up fentanyl with uh, some Benadryl or something like that and make a pill that is uh, that's only pennies to produce per each one. And so, you know, when it comes when in those first days, um, when fentanyl was mostly adulterating heroin, not that many people use heroin. You know, it's a it's a pretty small market, all told. But but then you've got meth and cocaine, and and mo- a lot more people use meth and cocaine. And so when fentanyl started adulterating those drugs, this the problem got worse. Now even more people use prescription pills. You know, that's the biggest um, market by far. You know, except maybe. Uh, marijuana, although I'm, I'm curious to know if more people pop pills or, t- or smoke weed. It's it's probably getting pretty close. But, um, but, but so that was the biggest untapped market for fentanyl. And, and now that that market is being tapped, we're starting to see the, the problem escalate even more. And the problem is that I think we're just, it's just the tip of the iceberg. I think like there are so many people who use pills recreationally. And once these dealers and these different drug distribution networks all over the country sort of tap into the profit saving potential, profit creating potential of fentanyl, it's going to get even worse. So, I mean, is is fentanyl here forever? Is this uh, something we should accept as part of the drug supply? I, I mean, I, I really don't see it going well away. I mean, um, the good news, I guess, right now you could say is that fentanyl is only really a bad problem in the U.S. and Canada and then the small northern European country of Estonia. And, um, you know, so so countries that have uh, decriminalized drugs like Spain and Portugal have not seen fentanyl, for example. And, you know, people there, harm reduction activists there credit um the fact that, you know, they say that people want these traditional drugs. They want the, the pure plant-derived real thing, you know. And so if, if they have access to that, then 
people aren't, there's not going to be, they're, they're not going to want to have fentanyl. And so, um, you know, but, 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 you know, I feel like I'm a little bit more cynical. And since the cat is out of the bag, um, or the genie out of the bottle, whatever metaphor you'd like to lose, I don't see fentanyl sort of going away. What has response to your book been like? I think, you know, there's, there's a lot of outrage about China. There's a lot of sort of sadness. Um, there's a lot of sort of despair that the problem is getting worse. I mean, you know, I've talked, spoken with a lot of parents who lost a child to fentanyl and they almost all fall into one of two camps. You know, they all want to do something. And when your kid dies, that that's really a motivator. You know, you want to, for, for people who, you know, maybe can hardly think of a reason to live anymore. The idea of protecting other young people from this same thing happening to them becomes a very motivating force in their lives. And so they almost fall into, almost all fall into the camp of either like ultra harm reduction, like, you know, we really need to strip away the puritanical sort of impulses of our culture and acknowledge that, you know, just like, just like abstinence education doesn't work when it comes to sex education, um, that abstinence is not going to work when it comes to, to drug education either, that we should admit that kids are always going to use drugs and just make sure they're better educated and do so more safely. And then the other half of these parents get more sort of law and order than ever before. And they want these really extreme sanctions against China and Mexico. And they, they want sort of longer jail terms, or they want to put more drug pushers behind bars or, you know, and so um, those, you know, I've heard a lot from both sides. And which direction do you see uh, the political response going in? Is, you know, parents oftentimes are very influential. And I think with over 100,000 overdose deaths, there's a far greater push to actually respond. Which direction do you see the government going in? I know you were advising uh, members of the House and the Senate, what kind of response, uh, what kind of response have you received? You know, even the sort of most right wing legislators have have sort of been leaning left on this issue in recent years. And um, a lot of people say that it's because this problem has become so widespread that these people in power are now experiencing their own family members dying. and, And they're starting to realize that it's not like these other sort of people who are dying from drugs. It's like people they know and love. And so they, there's been, you know, under Trump, there was a criminal justice reform of all things. I mean, I, who could have predicted that, you know, I mean, we had um, the crime bill under Bill Clinton and then a lot, you know, which was really ramping up a lot of these, uh, you know, law and order practices. And then under Trump, of all people, a lot of drug offenders saw their sentences reduced or, or you know, they were they were let go. Um, yeah, there's something about Republican presidents. Nixon established a national treatment system. Who knew? The same day yeah, he exactly. declared the war on drugs. So, I mean, periodically, uh, it's like the presidents on the right can get away with some of the most um, 
significantly liberal <laughs> drug initiatives. Yeah, exactly. You know, and Nixon created like the Environmental Protection Agency and stuff like that, too. Right. Um, right. Yeah. You, you know, if your credentials are solidified and with your with your base, you can sort of break out of the box a little bit. Um, but, you know, at the same time, the um, fentanyl was exempted from these sort of new drug reform laws. And so so while if you were convicted of heroin, you might have gotten given a letter, a smaller sentence, um, fentanyl, that's not the case. And And the biggest problem, I think, is that the, you know, in attempting to go after drug dealers and drug, not drug users, this is sometimes a false distinction because a lot of heroin and fentanyl dealers are just addicted users themselves who are just selling to support their own habits. Right, right. So you've said now that fentanyl is probably here to stay and that the problem is probably going to get worse. So what should we do? No small question. I recognize this. What should we do? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, you know, I really think the the biggest problem is education right now. And um, people still haven't, you know, as as much as I spend all day talking about this, it's just most, you know, so many people still do not know what fentanyl is. And most importantly, don't think it could happen to them, you know. And so I know all these like otherwise very intelligent people who um, will do a line of cocaine at a party and couldn't even imagine there could be fentanyl in it, even though fentanyl adulterated cocaine is killing people every day. Um, and it's, you know, for young people, especially, they, they just have no idea what fentanyl is or that it's even out there. Um, like I said, we do have these resources available for, for drug checking, for fentanyl testing strips. Um, we need to deploy these resources. And also, as you know, you know, these different opioid treatment medicines. And, you know, we're, we're lucky enough where there is funding for these different treatment medicines like naltrexone and uh, methadone and buprenorphine. But it's not often reaching the people who need it. And I think we really need to treat the, the drug overdose problem the way we've treated COVID, sort of with an all hands on deck approach. And, you know, we're, we're, we're fast approaching a time where drug, drug deaths are, you know, killing more people than COVID. Um, if we haven't gotten to that, we're, we're going to get to that very soon. And, um, and yet it's, it's not the same approach, not this sort of emergency approach that's taken to it. I was thinking about that too, uh, the response from the federal government for COVID. I mean, I remember last spring when uh, like an emergency vaccination station was set up uh, in one of the DC Metro station parking lots, you know, and it was run by the National Guard and the Air Force. And I was in and out in like 15 minutes and it was like, and then you come back in three weeks. And then a couple of weeks after that, when pretty much everybody in the area had been uh, had been vaccinated who was going to get one. They packed it all up and moved it somewhere else. It was incredible. I mean, it was like watching, it was like watching uh, the Civilian Conservation Corps or something. Like, wow, it was, it was remarkable. I mean, that, that, that we can mobilize such a response to something we see as a threat is proven by our response to COVID in some ways, not in every way, but in some ways. And yet we're not mobilizing with the same level of uh, energy or, or, you know, tension 
toward the community that is dying of overdose deaths. And I wonder what that says, <laughs> right? What does that say about how we feel about drug users? That's, uh, I think that's, you can't, you can't imagine a better analogy, right? Yeah, I think it goes back to this, you know, largely kind of mistaken idea that um, you choose to do drugs, you choose to have drug problems, but that COVID happens to you, you know, and, and, you know, that, that is true to some extent, but, but also drug use is much more, you know, problematic drug use is much more common in communities with poverty where there's heavy poverty. And, you know, it's like these people didn't choose to be brought up in poverty. And so, um, and plus it's, it's a problem that affects all of society and, you know, people who have these bad opioid problems are often sort of, um, you know, robbing and stealing to, to pay for their habits. And, you know, a lot of people resort to prostitution and these are sort of why they become wider public health problems. And so really working just to, to solve this, this opioids problem is, is probably, probably would probably pay for itself. So as you, <laughs> you know, very clearly show um, when you get deep into researching the story of drugs in America, oftentimes it comes up with like really depressing stuff. You know, it's just like, it's, it's, there, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of misery in the world of researching drugs and drug use and drug treatment in America. And oftentimes debates get really, really heated because people are really invested in this topic as well. Uh, you're coming at Fentanyl Inc. from, you know, the hip hop and music world. Are you happy that you waded into, <laughs> you know, the world of drugs? Um, sometimes things can get testy, but overall, do you, are you happy about what you contributed to the conversation? And, and are you going to keep writing about this subject? I, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm definitely glad I got involved with this subject. I mean, I had a friend who died from fentanyl back in 2010. He was sort of misusing the patches, the prescription patches. Um, and so it, you know, it did feel a little bit personal to me and, you know, I, I came up in the rave scene myself and have been interested in psychedelics, you know, for many years and, um, just learning more, like kind of peeling back all the misinformation I'd acquired through my whole life, like any American growing up in our society, um, was really nice. So, so now I've spoken with you a lot about these different opioid treatment medications, and um, I have been pitching a documentary about naltrexone, which is uh, an opioid blocker so it's called an uh it's called an antagonist and is delivered in the form of a shot called vivitrol i'm telling the listeners not you because you know um more about this than i do but um and so um it's very effective if you can get users on it and so the problem is that you have to be completely you can't have taken any opioids. You have to have all the opioids out of your system, which can take up to a week maybe um, before you can take the Vivitrol shot. But once you have taken it, you won't be affected at all for 25 days by opioids. So you could even take heroin, but not have the effects. And um, for some people, this is really effective. And I 
have a friend who got out of prison this summer and I've been taking him. He, he had a bad opioid use disorder problem before he went in. And, you know, I even took him to, uh, to get buprenorphine and he'd been on methadone previously, but he just sold, you know, these treatment drugs. They're, they're much more well-known methadone and then the uh, buprenorphine, um, also known as Suboxone, he would sell them to buy heroin. And so those approaches clear, clearly weren't working for him, but he's had really good success on the Vivitrol shot ever since he got out of prison. You know, he still has plenty of problems in his life, but, you know, the opioid addiction is not one of them. And so I've, you know, kind of spurred by this, this real life success story, I've been interested in trying to figure out why Vivitrol is not more popular. You know, all, all you really hear about when you read articles about opioid addiction is uh, methadone and Suboxone. And it's, it's, I think I've kind of uncovered a lot of the stuff you were talking about. There's people who are very sort of set in their ways and um, kind of two sides that are screaming past each other. And it is not to the benefit of the patients themselves. Oh, absolutely. Um, absolutely. I think that's, um, that's going to be a really important documentary. Uh, there's been a couple of documentaries, right, about naltrexone, the Sinclair method, I think it's called, or One Little Pill, uh, about its use with alcohol use disorder. But um, yeah, it's, it's, it's history uh, from the 1980s on is just really fascinating. And uh, I do find that naltrexone gets like a lot of hate, you know, like the haterade is poured onto naltrexone pretty heavily. And I've never fully understood. I've never fully understood why. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're both, uh, we're both know this, um, the owner of a, a group of clinics called ARCA, the Assisted Recovery Centers of America, and his name is Percy Menzies. And uh, he's really uh, taught me a lot about naltrexone. And I know you've spoken with him a lot, too. And, and talking to you has really, has really helped, too. And, um, you know, I just appreciate people like you who are really open-minded and, and seem to be really concerned with the best treatment option instead of kind of letting, you know, kind of preconceptions or, or sort of like dogma kind of blind you. Guide the way. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Well, so when you're not working on documentaries uh, and writing for all these major outlets and giving public talks and advising top government officials, et cetera, et cetera, apparently you've also been working on another book. You have a new one coming out soon. Is that correct? Yes, it's called Little Brother, Love, Tragedy, and My Search for the Truth. It is about my relationship with my mentee in the Big Brothers, Big Sisters program. His name was Jarrell Cleveland, and he was murdered in 2016 near his home in Ferguson, outside of St. Louis, where I live. And so... Jarrell and I were paired up when he was eight and I was 28 and we were together for more than a decade. We were very, very close. But when he was killed in 2016, the police had no idea who did it and the case went cold. And so his family was very um, 
you know, very desperate for answers. And, and, and so was I. And so I sort of took these skills that I've developed as an investigative journalist and, um, you know, figured out who killed him. You know, it's kind of, this is kind of a true crime memoir that required me to, um, learn the truth about Jarrell's kind of dark past, the stuff he kept from me, and also to investigate, you know, the history of St. Louis and Ferguson and all the kind of racism and poverty that shaped the community that Jarrell died in. Oh, that sounds amazing. I cannot wait to read that. Um, and it, I think it is coming out, when is it released? In May, May of 2022, a few months. Wow. Can you pre-order it now? Yes. Super. Well, perhaps everyone listening to this should. All right. So now is the time for our traditional last question, which is what you're working on now. Even though you wrote one of the best books on fentanyl, you got a new book coming out in what, four months. Uh, What can we expect from you after that? Well, I'm writing the screenplay for a potential fentanyl ink feature film and Whoa. so the, the book has been optioned and it's in development um you know i don't know when if ever the film will actually come out because these things have a lot of different ways of of going going south but um but it's sort of a you know it's kind of like a slightly fictionalized take on my infiltrations of the Chinese drug lab. So, you know, there's a character called Ben Westhoff and uh, he goes to China and it's a kind of a, a madcap fish out of water story. And um, I think it, I think it will be good. That's, that's awesome. Who do you want to play you? Who do I want to play me? Mm-hmm. Um you know, what my manager was asking me about this and I started, you know, thinking of all these handsome Hollywood leading <laughs> men. And, um, and then my manager was like, nah, I'm thinking Jonah Hill would be great. <laughs> and I was like, I, w- I was kind of insulted when he first said that. But then I was like, you know, that would be pretty amazing. So I would take that. Oh, that would be great. Jonah Hill's about to play Jerry Garcia in a Grateful Dead biopic. It would be... Oh, he is? That's awesome. I guess Seth Rogen. I guess he beat out Seth Rogen. You you know, like, what a... I mean, nothing better. You can't top Jerry Garcia unless now you're playing Ben Westhoff in the film version (laughs) of Fentanyl Inc. That's it. That's like, that's going to be great. Um, Well, once it's out, I can't wait to see it and hopefully talk about it more with you and then maybe talk about your next book as well here on new books network thank you so much for joining me today this was a completely fascinating discussion thank you emily it was great to be here thanks for having me it was great talking to you